The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here. We are going to be in Revelation chapter 16. And if you're wondering, are we really going to do the entire chapter of Revelation chapter 16? The answer is yes. We're going to do the entire chapter of Revelation chapter 16. So let's turn there in our Bibles. At Fountain of Life, we like to preach through uh, entire books at a time. It's a good discipline. Number one, it keeps me from having to be so genius of needing to come up with incredible series all the time. I'm not that intelligent or gifted to pull that off. Uh, But it also forces us to have a look at the whole counsel of God and enables us to see everything his word says over time. And we want to do that. We want to be honest towards him and towards one another. So we're going through the book of Revelation Revelation, and today we're in chapter 16. So here's Revelation 16. This is the word of God. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty." Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been. Been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. 
And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we confess and admit this is a, a difficult passage. Uh, there are many things in this passage that are hard for us to understand. Um, and there are things in this passage that we do understand that are hard for us to accept. And so we pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would come and be with us now as we sit before your word. First, I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to teach this faithfully and clearly. Lord, I pray your intended purpose in this passage would, would land clearly um, on us, in us. And Lord, I pray that you would preach a better sermon than I ever could, one that opens minds, opens ears, writes your truth on hearts. You know each person listening to this message today, each person here, Lord. And we just pray together that you would speak to us, minister to us, communicate to us, show us who you are, what you are doing, what you will do, and how to respond accordingly to the reality of a holy God. So help us now as we come before your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever heard of the story, uh, The Stepford Wives? You ever heard of that story? Okay. First it was a novel. I think a couple of movies have been made. The story goes kind of like this. There's this town where every wife is, quote-unquote, perfect, at least according to ugly stereotypes. And you later find out that the reason they can be so, quote-unquote, perfect is because the wives aren't real wives anymore. They become robotic counterfeits or all drugged up, depending on the version of the story. So what happened? Well, there's this club of creepy men who created fake wives. So they wouldn't have to deal with the difficulty of real marriages with real women. You know, I thought, maybe that's a decent illustration of what people like to do with God. It's a decent illustration of what people like to do with God. Don't we all have a little bit of a Stepford husband in us when it comes to God? Doesn't this culture seem to think, and maybe even maybe sometimes some things in us, wouldn't it be great to have a God who never disagreed with you? I've actually heard people say, oh, I could never believe that about God, whatever it is. I could never believe that about God. Well, why? Well, I just don't like it. In what, are, in, in what other aspect of life is reality based on what you like? Maybe it's becoming more and more that way in our day. Wouldn't it be great to, God who, to have a God who never disagreed with you? And so, wouldn't it be great to have a God who always thought you were right? Uh, wouldn't it be great if, you, if there was a God whose job was sort of to nudge the circumstances of your life in your direction for your sense of happiness? Wouldn't it be great, we sometimes think, wouldn't it be great if God thought you were the best and did all things for your glory? Kind of sounds comfy. And let me tell you that God is as real as a Stepford wife. 
It's not real. 70, 70 years ago or so, there was a theologian out of Yale. His name was H. Richard Nieberg. And he wrote an important book called Christ and Culture. And in that book, he voiced his problem with what you could call progressive Christianity. And he penned a line that's become somewhat famous, at least in pastor circles. Nieberg wrote that that kind of Christianity espouses that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. In a lot of places, in a lot of ways, even in, in certain kind of tribes of Christianity, it seems like that's, that's the kind of God we want. A God without wrath, who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Those are, those are popular beliefs in our day. It's a great example of a Stepford wife kind of a God. Let me tell you, right? We meet a very different kind of God in the pages of the Bible. A very different kind of God. That's one reason we're preaching through a book like Revelation. Because we want to see, as difficult or as terrifying or confusing as it can be, we want to see the real God as he reveals himself in his word. And in the Bible, we'll see people are sinful. Salvation is through Jesus Christ and his cross. And we will see, especially in our passage today, Revelation 16, God does have wrath. I mean, there's a lot of things that are difficult to understand in Revelation 16. But if you didn't get the idea that God has wrath, I don't know how you missed it. He has wrath. So it's a difficult passage, right? Uh, full of symbolism. And, and to me, it was like all of Old Testament history was thrown at us in the symbolism of this passage. But despite all the complexities, we want to deal with this underlying reality, this main point of this passage that God is the creator of the universe and the sustainer of all life, that humanity has rebelled against him and his ways, creating their own gods. And God warns and warns and warns, and one day... His patience in this way will end, it will be enough, and he will reclaim what is his, and he will come and pour out his comprehensive wrath. He will undo the world so that he can remake it. So the question, I think, for this chapter, for our passage today, is how should we respond to the reality of a real God who has real wrath? How should we respond? Uh, one response might be, well, this is too barbaric. You know, we, can, we can't believe in a God like that anymore. I just want to encourage you to listen to the message from last week. You know, in, in order for us to endure the evil of this world and to not become vengeful or violent ourselves, we need a God who brings justice. We thought about some of that last week. We, we shouldn't look away from this. Sometimes people just, just want to ignore it, pretend it's not there. But, I mean, that's a bad habit I have with my problems, but it doesn't usually work. 
You know, this text is telling us how, part, part of how we can and should respond to the reality of a real God who has real wrath. So there's a lot of details to unpack. I'm probably being far too ambitious to do all of this in one sermon. But I wanted you to see how it fits together. And uh, if it's going a little long for you, just remember that towards the end, we get to talk about the Battle of Armageddon, right? And everybody wants to know about that. So we'll think about that a little bit today. But even as we have all these details to unpack, I want to frame it in just, I think, what are the main themes which are our response. You know, a danger in the book of Revelation is you can get so kind of curious about the theories on how this work or how that might work that it doesn't actually hit your heart. And let me tell you, this text is meant to hit your heart. I mean, even if we don't agree on all the specifics of the details, I think we can come together in what the text is showing us about how to respond to the reality of a holy God who has wrath. So we'll take it in three parts. Number one, the first response is repentance. Number two, the second response is that those who have repented need to stay awake. Stay awake. The third response is you stay awake as you cling to hope. Repent, stay awake. Stay awake as you cling to hope. First of all, repent. Let's dive in. Revelation 16.1, I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. I want to take a couple minutes to put together some of what we've seen in Revelation so far so we can understand the framework of how this book is working. Chapter 6, you remember we saw judgment coming in a series of seven seals. Chapter 8, we saw judgment coming in a series of seven trumpets. Chapter 10, we saw judgment coming in a series of seven thunders, even though we didn't get to know what those were. Chapters 15 and 16, we see judgment finishing in a series of seven bowls. So notice something. Four times a series of seven. Why? Who cares? Well, it just reminds us, like everything in Revelation, this pattern is an echo from the Old Testament. So if you're curious, go and read Leviticus 26 this afternoon. And you'll see there God being very serious with his covenant people, Israel, about the importance of them putting their faith in him. And if they will trust in him, there'll be great blessing. But if they break the covenant, if they spurn his ways, if they insist on worshiping idols, there will be his judgment and he says there in that passage that he will punish sin sevenfold. Leviticus 26, he'll punish sin sevenfold. Can you guess how many times he says he'll punish sin sevenfold? Four times. Four times a sevenfold punishment. And now you, now you see, what is John echoing for us here? Four times a sevenfold punishment. It's an echo out of the scriptures. And so look, Leviticus focused in on God's covenant people. Revelation takes that idea, intensifies it, and expands it now to the entire world. So you'd see an intensification and an expansion. 
Let's think about some of these similarities from these sevens. They all follow the same pattern in a variety of ways. First of all, there's four and then three. There's always four and then three. So you get four judgments. The fifth will be an intensification. The sixth, the transition. The seventh, the end. So we're just reminded as we see this repetition We're looking at the same things over and over again from different perspectives. We're looking at the same period of time from Jesus' first coming to his second coming. We're looking at this time repeatedly from different perspectives. So it's just a reminder. Should you read the chronology of the visions in Revelation like it's the chronology of history? No, you'll get in in trouble. For instance, this is the fourth time we're looking at final judgment. So we're seeing the same thing again and again. Moreover, each series begins and ends with a view into God's heavenly temple. Why? Four series of sevens. Each time begins and ends with a vision into God's heavenly temple. What is that meant to tell you? Who's in control of all this? He is. From, who, who's the source of all this? He is. Who's guiding where it's going to go? He is. Our God is in sovereign control of history. Third thing to see is a comparison between the trumpets and the bowls. And this is so important. It's a a framework idea that helps you interpret the passage. Both the trumpets and the bowls, did you notice even as we read today, it's based heavily on that story of the Exodus and the plagues on Egypt. Did you see that? It's based heavily on the story of the Exodus and the plagues on Egypt. And there's so many clues in the context of the book that the Exodus is on John's mind. So let's just remember the the basics of that story. God's people, Israel, enslaved by Pharaoh in Egypt at the time, the most powerful nation in the world. They, They were hopeless to save themselves. But God comes and he warns Pharaoh again and again and again and again and again. He warns him again and again. Part of the warnings are these plagues where God shows himself to be the true God of history and he exposes all these idols to be false. What's Pharaoh's response despite all these warnings and all this evidence? What's his response? He won't repent. He won't repent. So so just a by the way, if you're like, I'd believe in Jesus if I had more evidence. Jesus isn't sure. Uh, The Pharisees had all the evidence. They didn't believe. Pharaoh in Egypt had all this evidence. They wouldn't believe. The heart was so rebellious. And so finally, after plague, after plague, after plague, after warning, after warning, after warning, God's finally done waiting And he delivers his people. Both the trumpets and the bulls share that framework. So just real quick, if you're curious, first trumpet, first bull, they both deal with the earth. Second bull, second trumpet, they both deal with blood in the sea. Third bull, third trumpet, they both deal with rivers and springs of water. Fourth bull, fourth trumpet, they both, four trumpets, uh, sun, moon, stars, fourth bull is the sun. Fifth trumpet, Demonic oppression and deception. Fifth bull, the oppression of the demonic. Sixth, bull, sixth trumpet, armies at the Euphrates. Sixth bull, armies at the Euphrates. Seventh trumpet, lightning, thunder, earthquake. Seventh bull, lightning, thunder, earthquake. 
They're so similar. There's a parallelism and an intensification. So why lightning, thunder, and earthquake at the end? Look again, back to the Exodus. Remember the story? After God saved Israel from Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And then what was that experience like? He came, right? He came, and it was overwhelming. Creation seems to be like it's going to be undone, and there's earthquakes, there's smoke, there's lightning, there's thunder. So theologians would say this is the language of theophany when God comes. And you're less walking by faith, faith and there's more sight. He's come. And so at the sevens, what's it telling you? When there's lightnings, trumpets, earthquakes, he's coming. He's coming. In this part of the book, you know, we hear about God. He's the one who was and is and is to come. In this part of the book, we hear he's the one who was and the one who is. And they don't say he's the one who is to come because he's here. Because he's here. So what do we see here? Well, Revelation has intensified and expanded this Exodus story. Now the Pharaoh of Egypt is representative of the entire rebellious world and God's people who will be delivered. That's the church. People of every tribe, tongue, nation who trust in Jesus Christ. So do you see again how Revelation has intensified and expanded these themes from the Old Testament for the age of the church? But, but this is the big reality, right? And these sevenths show us. This is the big reality. God is telling us that he is coming in judgment on the world for the salvation of his people. You know what's so exciting about this text, even as it's hard, is that what God is saying is there will be a second exodus. Remember how the first exodus started with the Passover lamb saving them from the angel of death? And it finishes with God taking them to the promised land through the Red Sea. Our first exodus, the first part, who's our Passover lamb? Jesus died for our sins. And our second exodus will be completed when he comes again. It's like we're reliving it in a symbolic way. So just taking that into account, the reality that God is going to come in judgment on the world for the salvation of his people. I guess we, here's where we start and here's, here's where we pause for a moment and say, have you, have you taken that into account? Has your heart taken that into account Are you ready for that? You think of all the things in life that are coming, deadlines, interviews, projects, things we need to do, things we need to think about, things we need to be ready for. How often am I caught not ready? My son had pictures for Little League Baseball yesterday. I totally didn't. I didn't just forget. I didn't know. I wasn't ready. I made it by the skin of my teeth because some people helped me out. That's silly. That's trivial. But if you ever want to be ready for anything, wouldn't you want to be ready for God to come? Wouldn't you want to know you've responded appropriately to the reality that a second exodus is moving, that you're of the people of of Israel, you're God's people, and you're not of 
Pharaoh, the, the, the rebellious, the unrepentant. God's going to come. How should we respond? Well, let's walk through these bulls quickly. So I'm going to give you my take on how these bulls work. And if you disagree, I just want you to know I love you, okay? We don't base, like, whether or not you're a Christian on how you interpret the seven bulls of Revelation, okay? That'd be awful, wouldn't it? Um, but I'm going, to, I'm going to teach it the way I see it, and hopefully we'll, we'll land on some things uh, together that show us how to respond. But I think the response will be clear. So anyway, first bull. First angel went and poured out his bull on the earth. Harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. If you've been here for very long, I've been telling you, I don't think the mark of the beast is ultimately literal, though it could show itself in various times and places in a literal way. No, the mark of the beast is about who owns your heart. The spiritual mark for God's people, that's not literal. When I pray with somebody to receive Jesus, I'm not then looking at their forehead waiting for the name of Jesus to appear. No, but God has marked them. He's going to keep them. Same thing, this mark of the beast. This question of the mark is about who owns your heart. The mark of the beast means you'd rather have the systems of this world than Jesus. It means you don't trust him in what he's done, and you're not following according to his word. You're following something else instead. That's what the mark means. So if a mark's not literal, and I really don't think it is, the sores here probably aren't limited to the literal either. After all, they're again, they're modeled on a plague of Egypt. But that doesn't mean that what they signify isn't real. There's probably a penalty of suffering of some kind due to persistence in idolatry. And here I just want to be really clear. I'm absolutely not saying that all suffering is the wrath of God. I'm not saying that. I don't believe that. Um, the Bible gives a very nuanced, wise, complex view of suffering and how to figure it out. And I just want to emphasize here, there is no wrath left for those who trust themselves to Jesus. Amen? There's no condemnation left. So if you're suffering, and we all will at some point, if you're not suffering, just wait longer, right? Um, if you're suffering, let me just tell you... It, you're not facing the plague of God's wrath because you're spiritual Egypt. God has a different story for what's going on here. He's going to work it for your good. But the point here, which we're going to see over and over again, is the punishment fits the crime. It shows you this in a symbolic way. Those who took the mark get the mark. The punishment fits the crime. God's justice will come. We see this in the second bowl. It's blood poured out. In the sea. Again, I don't, I don't think this is literal. I think this signifies something else. Taken in context, it probably signifies economic collapse. In the first century, maritime trade was everything, and there are clues all through this part of Revelation that the part of what's going on here is the economy is enabled by the trade in the sea. So if the blood is poured out and everything dies, what is it telling you? Say, say I'm right. Say it's about the economy. What's it telling you about the economy? It just, the bottom falls out. Well, how would that make sense? Again, the punishment fits the crime. Remember back in chapter 13? If you don't take the mark, you won't be able to buy or sell. Part of persecution of Christians has always been, just look through church history, part of church persecution of Christians has always been not allowing them to participate in society and economic life. 
And so God seems to be saying here, you're going to use the economy to persecute my people, you're going to lose your economy. The punishment fits the crime. Third bowl, all the fresh waters turn to blood. Again, I think this is symbolic. It follows the Exodus plagues. It's also an echo of Isaiah 49, 25. I think that's helpful here. Look at Isaiah 49, 25. For thus says the Lord, I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Isn't that great? I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. God fights for his people. Now, I know it's hard for us to take in this kind of language, And it's probably because we're living in basic freedom and comfort. But the reality is that Revelation was written to some churches where Christians were dying for their faith. I was reading some church history last night. That's a great, if if you're trying to fall asleep, you know, read some church history. But this was was actually kind of enthralling because here in the uh, early second century, I mean, Christians are being killed for their faith. I mean, it's it's that question I ask myself, like, would I really... Lose it all for Christ. I hope I would if it, was, if it came to it. I hope I would. But imagine you're in a place like that. I, I know people who are in, in places more like that. We know that in pockets and places, persecution has continued throughout church history. It's increased markedly, globally in the last hundred years. And can't we understand, the more you and your community are harshly persecuted, the more you're ready for God to come and seriously fight for you. Aren't you ready? Come and fight for me. And that's what happened. Again, the punishment fits the crime. You shed the blood of my people, blood will be shed. It's that same theme. The punishment fits the crime. Look at the response of God's angels and God's peoples to God's judgment. Revelation 16, 5. I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. They've shed the blood of saints and prophets. You've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. What are the angels in heaven saying? Go, God. You're right. You are right to do this. You are right to bring this. There's no excuse. There's no muddy waters. There's no middle ground. You see with clarity what has been done. You have warned. You've been patient. You're right. In fact, the altar even speaks. In verse 7, I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Do you remember chapter 6? Who's there at the altar? It's the martyrs. Martyrs, Revelation 6, 9, those who have shed their blood for faithfulness to Jesus. And what do they say as God brings justice on their account to vindicate them? You're true and you're just. You're right. Do you see that theme? The punishment fits the crime. Same thing with the fourth bowl. The sun is scorching. Well, what does that mean? I think there's a clue back in Revelation 7, 16. Do you remember this? It's part of that beautiful promise about what heaven will be like for God's people. Revelation 7, 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. You see how the sun scorching fits with 
hunger and thirst. So being scorched by the sun in this bowl then, I think that signifies the results of economic collapse. Hunger, thirst. But look at at the response of the world in general in the midst of God's justice. Revelation 16, 9. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So, So what's happened here? Pharaoh's response has gone global. Despite all the plagues and the warnings, he wouldn't repent, and they won't either. And here's what's amazing. They believe in God enough to hate him. But they won't admit he's right. They won't admit he's glorious and valuable and worthy of their worship. They won't admit they're wrong, and they won't come to him for mercy. (laughs) <laughs> I take that as an amen in a, in a symbolic way. I'm just going to keep going. Are you with me? Here we go. Okay. <laughs> I, whoever it is, I love you. It's okay. All right. All right. The fifth bowl. Verse 10, hey, praise God. All right, all right. Uh, The fifth bowl. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So what does this mean? Pouring out darkness on a throne. Again, it's modeled on another plague of Exodus. Remember in Exodus 10, darkness comes over the land of Egypt. And here's what's so fascinating and, and humorous to me. It's a direct mockery, commentators think, of the sun god Ra, of whom Pharaoh was to believe to be an incarnation. So here's Pharaoh. I am an incarnation of the sun god. And here's God seeming to say, if you're the sun god, why is your land all dark? What's he just done to the sun god? You're not the sun god. Darkness exposes the fraud of idolatry. That's what it stands for. It exposes the fraud of idolatry. So in one way, there's darkness. People are blind because they wanted it and they chose it. In another way, there's exposure. They're, They're seen to be lost and foolish. Darkness on the throne means idolatry gets exposed. And so for God to pour out darkness on the throne of the beast... Remember, that's the satanically inspired government's gone bad, mandating idolatry, and everyone's following it. For darkness to be poured out on it means they're getting exposed. And the exposure comes in the suffering of those who follow the idolatry. You thought this would satisfy you? You thought this would save you? You thought you could do better than the holy God through Jesus Christ and the word of God? You thought you could replace him and all your dreams would come true? The words of the text say you'll be gnawing on your tongue. Sober, isn't it? Sam Storms is helpful here, commentator, pastor. 
He writes, a symbolic interpretation of the darkness is necessary insofar as literal darkness of itself cannot account for the intense pain that leads to the gnawing of their tongues. The latter could well include both emotional as well as physical anguish, the former in particular being the result of their experience of spiritual darkness and the realization of their separation from God. But again, we see the punishment fits the crime. Choose false gods. And you'll enjoy what that God has to offer you. So taking in these five bowls, how should we respond? That's that's the first third, really, of the passage. Taking in these five bowls, how should we respond? Well, we see it in a negative example, don't we? What are these people not doing? They won't repent. They won't see and admit and glorify God by admitting he's right and humble themselves and run to him for mercy. Here's a question for your heart. Who most needs to change, you or God? Who's right? What does it mean to repent? It doesn't mean to just feel sorry. Uh, It doesn't mean to be embarrassed because you got caught red-handed. It doesn't mean just taking a couple steps to be more moral. No. Did you know you don't particularly need Jesus to do any of those things? To repent is from the heart to admit that the holy, glorious God is right, and that you've been wrong in your sin, that your sin was idolatry, and then to run to God through Jesus Christ for his mercy. That's what it means to repent, to turn yourself to Jesus. And you know, God... God has never rejected anyone who has come to him for mercy through the person of his son. He's made the way. The the wrath of these bulls. You see what sin deserves and you realize Christ took that for those who trust in him. Come to God through Jesus Christ. There's a capital R repentance if you're not a Christian this morning and you're listening to this. You're invited. Turn yourself to Christ. Look to his perfect life to stand for you. Look to his cross to pay for the sin you deserve. Look to his resurrection. Trust yourself to him and enjoy God's mercy. And then, of course, there's the small r repentance. What's, what's the Christian life about, Christians? Every day, right? What are we doing? We're turning to Jesus again. We're coming to Jesus again. Repent. So if you miss all the details, I want you to hit the main points. What's the first way we ought to respond to the reality of a holy God who has wrath? Repent through Christ. Amen? Second one, the warning for God's people. Verse 12 takes us to the drying up of the Euphrates and gets us ready for the battle of Armageddon. And I know we're all so excited. We'll get there in just a moment. But first, I want you to see verse 13. Voices are speaking. Did you see this? Verse 13. Coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. Do you remember, we've seen this before, is the unholy trinity. Chapter 12, we met the dragon. That's a symbolic picture of the devil himself, right? Then you've got the beast, uh, satanically inspired government gone bad, demanding idolatry. Then there's the mouth of the false prophet. I think that's false religion, especially false Christianity. Remember, it looks like a lamb, talks like a dragon. But they're each, it's, it's emphasized, right? What do they each have in this passage? 
Mouth, mouth, mouth. What do mouths do? They talk. They talk. And it just reminds us of the fundamental work of Satan himself. His best work, it's not nightmares. It's deception. It's that lie he's been telling since Genesis 3. God's not good. His word's not true. Replace him. And you'll be into idolatry. Out of their mouths come three frogs. That's weird. Why frogs? Again, you have to have in context. What's the, what's the framework that's guiding this whole vision? It's the Exodus. And what was one of the plagues in Exodus? Frogs. And again, ironically, this is a mocking of the Egyptian gods. The, Egypt had a goddess named Hecht who was the goddess of resurrection. And if she exists, I think she's probably disappointed because guess what they chose to represent her? A frog. I, I'm, I'm wondering, maybe because in the spring there's lots of tadpoles and the frogs are croaking. I don't know. But here you have this deceptive croaking now to all the kings of the world. The beast is talking, inspiring them to come against God. And so you have here a plague of deception. And again, the punishment fits the crime. You don't want me, God says. You want to suppress the truth, God says. Be deceived. Be deceived. Take the consequences. And so they're inspiring all the nations to come against God. And, and how do nations do that? I encountered one commentator who actually wrote that the nations believe that Jesus will come back, and they got all their armies ready, and they were like, you know, like aiming at the sky. I just think, God love him. That seems ridiculous to me. That seems ridiculous to me. How, how would you fight God, biblically speaking? You remember, you remember what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus? Paul was out to, to persecute God's people, put him in prison, kill him if he can. He was out to get him, and Jesus knocks him off his horse and says to him, why are you persecuting me? The way the nations come against God is to come against his people. So here we have this very sobering idea of this demonically inspired deception to so hate Christianity and the people who love Christ that they come against them. But what's interesting about this passage is the warning that jumps in all of a sudden. Did you see it? Jesus jumps in with a warning. Verse 15, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, so that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. What does that mean? Well, first of all, let's just recognize in context. Do you think the dragon, the beast, the prophet, you think when they're speaking it'll be influential? The text is telling you it will be so successful. And the peoples and cultures and economies of the world will buy in to be against Christ and his people. It'll be really persuasive. And I guess part of the question is this, do you think you're all immune from that? You think you're immune? You don't, do you think you'll feel the pressure? 
You think you'll hear some of the messages? A little more in context, okay, just to, just to make it take us to another level on what this text is doing. Chapters 17 to 18 are going to be about God's dealing with Babylon. So who are going to move from this, you know, there's this one chapter of Old Testament history we're looking at the Exodus, God coming and saving his people in that kind of storyline. Well, there's another storyline as well in the Old Testament, right? It's the exile and Babylon. And how is God going to save his people from captivity in Babylon? You get to chapter 17 and 18, and guess who it's all about? Babylon. Even the end of this chapter, Revelation 16, God remembered Babylon to take her down, it says. What's going on in the symbolism here? Well, first of all, in that story, remember God's people were conquered by Babylon, taken into exile, but God judged that empire, left it to the dust of history. And yet, just like Egypt was expanded and intensified to represent the world, guess what John's doing with Babylon as well? Intensified, expanded to represent the world, signifying the world system, system, governments, economy, culture against God. It's so fascinating. In the beginning of chapter 17, you know, how, you know how Babylon is described? A prostitute. A prostitute. Now, it signifies the original audience would have heard it. John's talking about Rome and the Roman culture and the Roman system making us trying to worship the Caesar and all that stuff. That's what, that's what he's talking about. And, and, and Christians throughout history have read it as, this is the world systems, right? Pushing us away from loyalty to Christ. But in this text, she's called the prostitute. Why? She's alluring. She looks really good. If you spent some time with her, it'll thrill you. Leave Christ behind. Come and enjoy life. Come and fit in. Come and dive into what the world has to offer. And now I think it rings out a little more profoundly when Jesus says, hey, stay awake and keep your clothes on. Stay awake and keep your clothes on. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. What does that mean when Jesus says that in Luke 12, 40? You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Because thieves don't call you up and be like, I was thinking about robbing your house. Maybe Thursday at 9, does that work for you? Good, I'll be there. No, the whole, the whole mojo of a thief is you weren't ready. You didn't know. Jesus says, I'm coming like that. You won't be ready. Stay awake. Keep your clothes on. Church, do you want to be found in bed with Babylon when our great husband, Jesus Christ, returns? No. Stay awake. Cling to Christ. That's what it means. Cling to Christ. Stay awake about your own mind and your heart. Clinging to Christ. Keep your clothes on. That means, are you clothed in the righteousness of our great husband? His perfect righteousness, what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection. Are you leaning into him? Are you, in, are you living in your unification with Christ, with his people? Stay awake. Keep your clothes on. Babylon's going to be exposed, and so are those are in bed with her. It's a gracious warning, isn't it? Cling to Christ. So Revelation 16, the first thing, how do we respond to the reality of a God who's holy and has wrath? Number one, repent through Christ, right? Repent through Christ. Second, how do we respond to the reality of a holy God? Cling 
to Christ. If you remember those first two things so far, I'll be happy if you get all the rest, if you forget all the rest. Repent through Christ. Cling to Christ. But now let's talk about, you know, the moment at least some of us are waiting for, the Battle of Armageddon. I, I wonder, what do you envision when you hear that? Have, have, raise your hand if you've heard of the Battle of Armageddon. Yeah, okay. Anybody not heard of the Battle of Armageddon? That would be awesome. Okay, all right. Um, what do you envision when you envision the Battle of Armageddon? That's an interesting survey question. Um, it's very popular in our day for Christians to, even non-Christians talk about the Battle of Armageddon. They envision a modern war in the future where maybe China or Russia invades the political nation of Israel. Something like that, right? And so some are watching the news and counting armies. Now, if you pay attention to church history for very long, Christians used to be worried about Japan being in charge of the Battle of Armageddon. That's less in vogue today. But kind of, there's a, there's a perspective on this. It's so kind of modern, today's history-based. that The nations are going to come and, and fight today's political nation of Israel. And I just want to go ahead and tell, I'll lay, I'll lay out my cards before you. I think that's not what the text is about. I don't think that's the right interpretation of the text. So I'll do my best. What does it mean? Well, first of all, don't forget, it starts with the drying up of the Euphrates. Did you see that? Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings for the east. By the way, after being in Revelation all this time, do you think that's literal? Are you thinking, oh, it's a good thing? Because, wait, do, do modern armies need a river to be dried up to move troops or attack anything? What's the significance of it? Looking to the first century, looking to the Old Testament. Obviously, one, the Euphrates is the place. That's where the scary enemies come from. Okay, that was true for Roman Empire. It was true for a uh, Old Testament point of view. That's, that's where the enemies come from. And so you're, you're worried, right? And, and that's part of this theme here. But there, there's more. There's more. Listen, don't we have the idea of Babylon in our minds at this point? Got the ba- we, we've got the idea of Babylon in our minds at this point. Did you know that in ancient times, the Euphrates was part of Babylon's provision and protection? Okay? And remember, Israel was defeated by Babylon, exiled to Babylon, and there's nothing they could do. They're trapped as exiles in this nation. But look at what God promised in Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, look at this. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens. So what's God saying to his people? I'm your Redeemer. And you can bet on me, how strong is he? He made everything. It's powerful. Look at verse 27, Isaiah 44, 27. Who says, this is what the Lord says, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. And I think this is amazing, verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So God is promising to Israel, exiled in Babylon, having no hope of escaping on their own, that Cyrus, an empire of Persia, would come, deliver them from Babylon, and actually fund the rebuilding of the city and its temple. That's incredible. 
And you know what has to happen for Cyrus to overtake Babylon? He's got to get through the Euphrates. And guess what he did? He got through the Euphrates. And guess what happened? God's people were saved out of exile. When you know that story and you hear God promising he's going to drive the Euphrates, what, is, what does 1 Peter say about Christians? What does he call us? You remember? Calls us exiles. Lost in this world that's not our home. Huh. So now the nations are gathering at Armageddon. And John is careful to know that. In Hebrew, it's called Armageddon. What does that mean? Well, most commentators are said to think it means the mountain of Megiddo. The valley of Megiddo is a couple miles from Jerusalem. Look into the Old Testament. It's true. There were huge battles of God's deliverance there in that valley. But there's something strange going on. In Hebrew, it's called the Mount of Medigo. Here's the problem. There's no mountain in the valley. There's just not. There's no mountain. Is John wrong? Is this the thing where you're finally like, oh, it's the contradiction in the Bible. It's over for me. Is John wrong? Do you think he knows? Do you think he might be being symbolic after all these weeks together? Do you think his symbolism is taken from other places in Scripture, other places in Revelation? Yes, he knows, it's a, he knows there's no mountain there. What's the most prominent mountain in Revelation recently in context? Remember chapter 14, Mount Zion represents God's people. So in this vision, friends, the nations are gathering not for a literal war in a literal valley against a political country. All over the world, they're gathering against the church, the people of God who trust Jesus. You see the same picture in a parallel verse in Revelation 28. I think this seals the deal. Look at Revelation 20, verse 8. Satan will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of who? The saints and the beloved city. You see the picture of the battle of Armageddon, this final battle? All the world against God as they're against Christ and his church. And we're in exile. And we're hopeless. And we cannot win this war. We cannot save ourselves. But God just told us the Euphrates dried up. It means a deliverer is coming. Now you start to play that music of like the entrance of a prize fighter into the ring because you're looking around the corner and who's coming? Revelation 19, 11, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Who is this church? That's your Jesus. He's faithful. He will come. He's true. 
He keeps his promises. He will rescue the exiles. He will take them to the city. He will be their temple. He will make war on their enemies. And let me just tell you, when he makes war, he does not lose. He doesn't lose. Repent through Christ. Cling to Christ. Hope in God's deliverance at the return of Christ. Titus 2.13. We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus will come and save his people. And when Jesus comes, it will be done. And verses 17 to 21 will happen. As the psalm says, he'll shake out creation like a robe. As these texts say, creation will come undone. Things will fall apart. The hailstones from the battles of the Old Testament will fall, and Jesus will overwhelmingly win. God's enemies will be destroyed. He'll renew his creation. This is the true story about the real God. This is the true story about the real God. A God with some wrath brings people who have sinned grievously into a kingdom with judgment through the ministrations of Jesus Christ and his cross and his return. So what do we do? How do we respond to the reality of a God who has wrath and whose wrath will come? Repent through Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Hope in the return of Jesus. Because when he returns in wrath... That will be our deliverance. Let's pray. Our God, we give you glory. You are a holy God. We confess that we have sinned against you and thought that we were more right than you. I have. And we thank you for your great mercy that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus, lived the perfect life in our place, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, And we can repent and turn to you for your mercy through him and that you will never say no to that, that you will lavish your mercy on on us through that, that we will be adopted as your people. Let us turn to you, turn to you through Christ. And Lord, help us stay awake as the world is influential and tempting and deceitful and drawing us to other gods and satisfaction in other places. Lord, keep us clinging to Christ. Help us stay awake fervent for him, in love with him, wearing the, the, the robes of who he is and what he's done, unified to him. And Lord, whatever, whatever comes, whatever we experience, however this plays out, may it always be true that our hope is his return. And we just praise you for this image, this story of our great Savior, our great husband coming for us, saving us, delivering us to take us to be with him forever. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We want to live for you. Help us to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Thanks for coming, everybody. If you have questions, I'd love to chat with you, but I hope you have a great week. Cling to Christ. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening. 
and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.